Let's pull up that first slide. Uh, this, there was a church youth group, not our church, but another church, uh, where the kids were asked, the middle schoolers and high schoolers were asked to share a mental picture of what most reminds them about God. And so there was a lot of silly answers, um, but the, the, the youth pastor there told them, you know what, tonight it's safe for you to put aside your correct theology because we know that there's, you guys all know that there's, like some of you think there's a certain right answers that you're supposed to say. But for tonight, put aside your, your correct theology for the night, and we want you to share how you really feel. And so there was a lot of really good responses, a lot of humorous responses too. But the one that most deeply resonated amongst the young people in this youth group was someone said that God like, is like a vending machine. And so the, the way they put it was, it's like you put money in and then just eats up your money and then you walk away with nothing. And this young person, I applaud that kind of honesty. That's how they felt their relationship with God was like. And the students were kind of laughing about it in agreement. But then a girl said, you know what? It's kind of like that. But she shared, actually, I think that God is like the multiple vending machines on our, on our school campus. Some of them work. Some of them don't. And you just don't know if you're going to get anything, if it's going to work out for you, which is kind of disappointing. And I want to propose to you, if you and I are honest with ourselves and with God, that there's times that that's perhaps how we see prayer. That there's this deep feeling sometimes that God may not be dependable, or that God doesn't care much about me or the requests that I bring before Him. That our relationship with God is only transactional and conditional. That God responds if I'm being a good Christian and following all the right rules. And for some of us who maybe have a, a clearer theology, it feels like that the God that we learn about in church is not actually the God we experience in our everyday lives or in prayer. If you've ever wrestled with those kind of thoughts and feelings, may today's word encourage you. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn in it to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in, under the seat, and if you don't own one, please take that one home. That's our church's free gift for you. We are in this series called Between Two Worlds, what it looks like for us to live for Christ while living in the culture of Babylon. And we saw from the beginning of this book that people turned away from God towards idolatry and immorality, and so God's been warning them and warning them and warning them for many years until he says, if that is what you really want, then that's what you're going to get. And they end up conquered by the Babylonian Empire who takes their sons into the service of a pagan king and a pagan culture. Seventy years later, the Persian Empire comes along and conquers Babylon just as God promised. But we've discovered that it's not smooth sailing from now on. Now we're in the part of the book, chapter 7 through 12, where God is giving Daniel these visions about the future about successive empires, their rise and their fall, not to bless and deliver them, but to oppress and devour them. Different kingdoms, same spirit of Babylon. And today we're jumping forward to this fourth and final vision in chapters 10 through 12 about the future of God's people. But before we get to the content of that vision, which Pastor Daniel will talk about next week, God is going to pull back the curtains for us to re reveal what is happening unseen as Daniel is praying about these visions to give us insight and encouragement into our own prayer lives with God. 
Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, now he's switching to the first person, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So what's happening here, verse 1 is kind of a summary of what's happened, like all that's going to happen from chapters 10 through 12, but we're jumping forward to 536 BC. This is the third year of the reign of King Cyrus over the Persian Empire, which has swallowed up Babylon. It includes Israel and Judah, uh, so all the folks back at home. And for those of you who are history buffs, you remember that two years earlier, Cyrus had decreed that the first group of Jewish exiles who had been captured by Babylon were allowed to return home. And for historical reference, you can cross-reference with the book of Ezra chapter 1. And yet, when they arrive in their homeland, they experience fierce opposition from local gangs and local warlords who don't want these Jewish people to come back, and who force them to stop rebuilding, including rebuilding the temple of worship for God. And at this point in the story, you remember that Daniel first started as a teenager, probably about 15 years old in chapter 1. Now he is in his 80s. He is still in Babylon. He's unable to make the journey home. We don't know why, whether it's because of his responsibilities or maybe he's too old and frail, but he can't make the journey home. And so he finally gets the news about what, what's been happening these past two years in Judah, and he's so discouraged that he's mourning in prayer, in fasting. He hasn't bathed for three weeks. That's what it means when he said that he didn't anoint his body, not because of poor hygiene, but because He's denying himself because he is a man who cares more about spiritual matters than his earthly comfort. And the, the hard part for him is that he's saying in verse 1, I'm about to receive even worse news. This fourth and final vision, this word from God about coming warfare, coming suffering that's so great it's going to overshadow all the progress and all the pain of the current situation of God's people. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what we're focusing on this morning here in chapter 10 is what happens when Daniel seeks God's goodness and his guidance. And we already see from this passage the main idea of this whole text, which is that like him, you and I need to be persistent in prayer when we face great troubles. That as we run into the pains and the problems of life, you and I, we probably will turn to God at some point in fervent prayer. But what happens, I don't know about for you, but for me, if I don't see a change in one day, or as I pray, if I don't see something happening within a week or within a month, then what happens to me? How often I get impatient and upset with God, thinking maybe God's not there, or maybe God doesn't care. How long did Daniel pray in this passage? Three weeks. Why? because he knows that the challenge is incredibly great, but that his God is greater. So he's not going to settle for a one-time half-hearted prayer. Instead, he fasts and he prays continuously for three, three weeks. And when he does, God is going to pull back the curtain to respond in a very powerful way. Look at verse 4. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, 
with a belt of fine gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. So here in verse 4, we're seeing this is the first month of the Jewish calendar, and it's actually towards the end, this 24th day is towards the end of a special celebration they call Passover, celebrating God's deliverance of his people from sin and suffering and death in Egypt. And Daniel, he is standing on the bank of a river with his friends. They're having a prayer meeting, begging God for the same kind of deliverance for God's people today during his time. And in in verses 5 and 6, he looks up and he sees this glorious angelic being radiating with the glory of God, clothed in white, face like lightning, eyes like fire, and his voice like the roar of a multitude. In verse 7, only Daniel can see this luminous representative of God, but all the other men, they can sense it. This inexplicable terror falls upon them that they're in the presence of someone or something that is alien, that is holy, that is powerful, and so they flee and hide. And so we see in verses 8 and 9, now Daniel's standing alone. He's experiencing this great vision, this long-awaited answer to his three weeks of praying. And I want you to see this. It's not just, like for some of us, we think like when God responds, it feels like to us, it's not just a text that you receive or a telegram from heaven. Instead, he has a close encounter with the supernatural. And he's so overwhelmed that the strength drains out from his body. And as he hears the thunderous voice of this angelic being, this representative of God's glory, he topples over unconscious, face down on the ground. And what it reveals to us is that, like Daniel, we need to be persistent in prayer because it's about encountering a spiritual reality. What's happening here is a reminder that God is not simply a vending machine, that prayer is not just pocket change that we pay to get what we want from God. Prayer is not transactional, it's relational, and it's supernatural. We are calling on the very power and presence of God for something of heaven to come down and touch earth when we are calling towards heaven. And so Jesus puts it to us this way. In Luke chapter 18, he is teaching his disciples how to pray. And he tells them it's like being this powerless, impoverished widow who constantly pesters a judge to give her justice because she herself is unable to get it for herself. And his point, though, is that how much more so as you and I who are beloved children of God, how much more so do we need to persist in praying Because we're not just placing an Amazon order and having a contactless drop at the door. Because that's how many of us want prayer to be. Use the app, God, drop what I need at the door. No contact, no interaction. When we pray, we are calling on the God of heaven and earth to break through into our lives. 
to be touched by the supernatural. Now, if you're being honest with yourself, you're probably thinking like me, but I don't encounter God like Daniel does. I, I don't see things like that happen to me. And I would argue to you that you can and that you do, even if it's unseen. A lot of times we do not see the glory of God and the presence of His supernatural work in our lives directly. Daniel has the benefit of having the curtain pulled back, but it's happening to us all the time unseen. And the good news that we learn from the author of Hebrews chapter 10 is that because the Son of God shed His blood on a cross for our sins, that you and I can confidently enter into God's presence to draw near to Him. And so you and I need to be persistent as we pray because we're entering a spiritual reality, a spiritual battle by calling on a supernatural God. You understand? Okay, so Daniel prays. He prays a really long time, and the presence of God, the representative of God, something supernatural occurs to him. A vision is given to him. But why wasn't his prayer actually answered immediately? Verse 10, bless you. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have become because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. So there's a lot of stuff happening in this passage. Let's unpack it a little bit. In verses 10 and 11, this angel, he touches this trembling Daniel, not to confront him, but to comfort him. What is the first thing that he says in response to his prayer after these three weeks? Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. You see, Daniel's been desperately praying because he's overwhelmed by the obstacles and the oppression of God's people. And God's first response to him is that you are not forsaken. You are not forgotten. You are greatly loved by God. In some of your translations, you're greatly treasured by God. And in verse 12, though Daniel feels weak, God is strengthening him through this angel and says to him, fear not. Do you know what is the most repeated command in the Bible? Fear not. Do not be afraid. Of all the commands that God issues and tells his people, he says this one more than 365 times throughout the Bible. And so as we are praying, God knows the troubles that we face, that they're often bigger than we can handle, but they are not bigger than our God. So we trust this God who loves us is greater than our circumstances. And the angel reassures Daniel, since the first day that you humbled yourself seeking God, your prayers were heard. That's why this angel was sent. And what that means for us today is that as you love and trust and worship Jesus, from the moment that you directed a word or a need or your cries towards heaven, God hears you and God cares about you. And so the point here is that we would be persistent in prayer because we're greatly loved by God. You need to hear this because do you know that God's love for you is not measured by how comfortable your life is? Daniel 
his life from a teenager until his 80s was that he was kidnapped. He was enslaved by the Babylonian Empire. He was living under constant oppression and constant danger. He got betrayed by co-workers several times. He's undergone multiple regime changes. Somehow God has kept him up on top. And despite all the painful things that happened in his life, all these challenges, all these dangers, all these things where you might wonder, like, where is God in this? And yet he was greatly loved. Because what God gives to Daniel is greater than any of the earthly comforts that he could have longed for in this life. So don't look at the difficulty of your life and say, God doesn't love me. The cross and the empty tomb are the greatest evidence of how much God loves us and treasures you. When you pray, you pray with confidence because there's the God in heaven who loves you tremendously. It's not like bugging someone or trying to wring something out of someone's hands. Quick quote, William Barclay puts it this way, we're not wringing gifts from an unwilling God, but we're going to one who knows our needs more than we know ourselves, whose heart towards us is generous love. And if we do not receive what we pray for, it's not because God grudgingly refuses to give it to us, but because he has something far better for us. There's no such thing as unanswered prayer. The answer given may not be the answer we desired or expected, but even when it's a refusal, that answer comes from God's wisdom, but also God's love. That's William Barclay. Now, this still doesn't answer the question, why did it take so long for God to answer Daniel's prayer? And so, once again, we pull back the curtain It says here that God heard, God responded, God sent this angel. But in verse 13, for 21 days, this angel was locked in battle. Did you hear that? 21 days. In other words, three weeks, the entire time that Daniel was praying, this angel was being already sent out by God to respond, but he was locked in battle with the prince of Persia. And then you're going to hear another person, Michael, the chief prince. These are not human princes, right? Because... uh, no human can fight against an angel, like who's bat- so this angel was battling against the prince of Persia. This being is a demon. Like the messenger, a spiritual being, but a fallen angel. Originally created to love, serve, and worship God, but instead joined and served Satan, this once proud, mighty angel. And so they're cast out of heaven, eternally condemned, because they rebelled against God in an attempted coup to set Satan up as God. And their goal is to deceive and destroy people because they hate those whom God loves. Now, he's called the prince of Persia because Satan has assigned him to manipulate the human authorities over the Persian empire, who this messenger angel, it says in verse 13, is sent to actually watch over because Daniel and God's people are under the rule of Persia. Now, this messenger, he's been unable to get the upper hand against this demonic power until God sent Michael, who's described as a chief prince. In other words, he is an archangel of great authority, we learn in Jude chapter, uh, verse 9. But he is specifically sent to defend God's people, we'll learn in chapter 12, verse 1, that that's Michael's assignment. So he is this very powerful angel who oversees the defense of God's people. Now, the question you should be asking is like, okay, so this angel was delayed. Does that mean that God's will can be thwarted Does this mean that Satan is kind of like this evil and opposite equal to God? Not at all. If you look throughout the Bible or throughout history, what we discover is that 
God has proven himself sovereign over nations, over individuals, over history, over all of eternity. Satan is just another created thing, a created being from the hands of God. Now, God does allow Satan and his servants a a little bit of leeway to afflict people like we see in Job chapter 1. But ultimately, Paul the Apostle tells us in Romans chapter 8 verse 28, we know for those who love God that all things work together for the good for those called according to his purpose. In other words, if you love and worship and follow Jesus, not just the good things, but even the painful things, even the evil things that evil people or evil spiritual beings do in your life, God can weave those things and works them out to make his will, his good will, work through your life. They are not beyond his control. They are not a surprise to God. And so God is pulling back the curtain to reveal this spiritual reality, this spiritual battle that's surrounding God's people. And so when you don't get a response right away, it's not because God is unmoved or that he's withholding his blessing for you or that he's defeated or that he's late. What we see in this passage is that God is victorious. And the lesson for us is to be persistent in seeking God in prayer because we trust God's timing as we wait for God's fulfillment. You see, in verse 14, God sent this angel not just to resolve Daniel's concern about the present situation of God's people, but it says in verse 14, to reveal the latter days, this vision for days yet to come. That term, latter days, is used 10 times in the Old Testament. And it's always regarding the far future, events around the Messiah, Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, the prophesied Savior King. It always refers to things about the distant future as well, at the end of history, when that Christ King will return, as we'll see in chapters 11 and 12. It talks about those times in the latter days when God's people will go through tremendous tribulation, but are promised victory through this Messiah. And so the lesson here is that we are to be patient in prayer, that God is not done, and that we need to trust Him and trust His timing. It reminds me of uh, my son Indigo. He asked me once, like, uh, we were having this conversation about uh, my father passed away very close to um, when I was about Indy's age. And so we're having this conversation, and he asked me, when your dad was dying from cancer, Daddy, uh, did you pray about it? Um, How come God didn't answer And so the way I responded to him was, I did, and he did. I did pray that God would save my dad, and he did. It's just that he saved my dad spiritually and eternally instead of physically. Now, and he's a pretty sharp kid, so he kind of thought about it for a sec. Okay, but that sounds like kind of a cop-out answer to me. Like He didn't say it out loud, but I could tell that's what he was thinking because he asked, but daddy, did your dad die because God answered too late? Great question. And I had to think about it for a minute, right? And I, as I thought about it, I said, no, you know, what I know about God and in His Word, He wasn't too late. In fact, I think that it was God's perfect timing because He knew how long it would take to break my dad's pride so that it would lead him to Christ, that in his physical illness as he was suffering and all of his self-sufficiency was taken away from him, that was, he was finally humbled enough to admit a need for Jesus. And so I think that actually that was God's perfect timing, not his late timing. And that that was a far better answer because at the resurrection, my dad will be in perfect health again forever. And I get to be together with him again.
forever. Does God always give us what we want when we want, when we pray? Of course not. You know, that would just make us spoiled children. Any of you who are parents know that. You don't give your kids whatever they want. Ruth, uh, Ruth Graham once said, like, you know, uh, if God answered my prayers exactly the way I want, like, I would be married to multiple men that are bad for me at this point. So praise the Lord that she got to marry uh, uh, Billy Graham instead. No, God knows if something is good for us or not. Now, so he doesn't give us what we want when we want it all the time. But does he give us what he wants, what he wills for our lives at the right time? The answer is always yes. That's why we persist in prayer for your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, because we trust that he's good, that he's God, that he cares, that he hears us. And we also need to understand, just like what happened to Daniel, there are times even when we are praying in God's will, we also need to wait on God's timing. Let's wrap up this passage, verse 15. When he, the angel, had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the, the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, Behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I'll tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There's none who contends by my side except these, against these, except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, the angel, stood up to confirm and strengthen him, Michael. We wrap up with verse 1 from the next chapter because that's the actual end of the literary section. But in verses 15 through 18, what we see happening here is as Daniel brushes up against this supernatural vision. He is left speechless and strengthless, and he tumbles face down to the ground again. This is his favorite position during this chapter. And so this angel touches his lips so that he can speak, but he's in agony and anxiety over this intense vision he's experiencing. So the angel approaches him again to strengthen him, but not just with a comforting touch, but with comforting truths. And we see a theme hopefully that you're catching on it, for those of you who are students of the Bible, that's repeated, an emphasis, as the angel says to him again, man who is greatly loved, fear not. God's peace be with you, so be strong and courageous. And we see strength and resolve flow back into Daniel. Verse 20, the angel says to him, do you know why I've come? Yes, of course, they answer the prayer by giving him this vision. That's not the point. Look at verse 20. He's come to warn him. I'm going back to battle this demon that's manipulating the Persian Empire. And for those of you who are history buffs, you 
Get a picture of what this demon is doing behind the scenes. In 479 BC, he uses a man named Haman to influence King Xerxes. He's the, the fourth king of the Persian Empire to exterminate the Jewish people in their midst. But God raises up a young Jewish girl named Esther for just such a time as this to turn the tables. So this is what this prince of Persia is doing behind the scenes. But what this angel is saying to him is, that demon, the prince of Persia that I'm going back to battle, he's not the problem. Look at what he says next. Behold, when you see that in the Bible, that's like pay attention that afterward another prince, another demon, a prince of Greece will rise. And the day is coming when the Persian empire will fall. We've seen it in throughout multiple visions now at the hands of the Greek empire and be, be manipulated by a far worse demonic power. That, Daniel, is who you have to pay attention to. That is what we're going to warn you about with this fourth and final vision in chapters 11 through 12. I want you to see this. The visions that God gives Daniel, they're kind of like a microscope, kind of zooming in to greater and greater detail. And so the ver first vision he receives in chapter 7 is this overview of the rise of four empires, oppressive empires, starting with Babylon, per Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And then the second vision zooms in a little bit, chapter 8, to the fall of the Persian Empire and the rise of the Greek Empire. And then it zooms in a little bit more in chapter 9 with a third vision where an angel reveals to, to Daniel that there's coming an anointed one, which means a Messiah, or in Greek, Christ, a savior king, but also the rise from the Greek Empire of an anti-king or an anti-Christ. And then finally, in chapters 11 through 12, I don't want to steal Pastor Daniel's thunder, but... There we get details about this Antichrist committing blasphemies against God, atrocities against God's people, leading to his own destruction, but also to God's ultimate redemption. And what we see is that this prophecy that, that Daniel is going to receive about this Greek empire and the rise of this demonic power in Greece is that it's going to be fulfilled in 168 B.C. by Pastor Daniel already talked about this a few, few uh, months, maybe a month ago. Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, will come 168 BC, slaughter Jewish people, desecrate God's temple as a type of Antichrist. But you see, I want you to see that the visions God gives aren't just a microscope to zoom in onto details. They're also like a telescope to see farther out. Because in Mark chapter 13, verse 14, Jesus quotes this passage in all these things from Daniel chapter 11 through 12, but he talks about not as history that has already happened in the Greek empire, but from his perspective about things yet to come. In other words, when Jesus describes these things, he's talking about them being fulfilled not just in the past in Antiochus, but fulfilled in a distant future through an ultimate antichrist, not just a type of antichrist. So what's happening here is a warning, not just for what's ahead for God's people in Daniel's time, but for God's people in our time. Verse 21, what does all this mean? You're, you're, you're kind of all over the place, Pastor Josh. Verse 21, but I, the angel, tell you, Daniel, the truth about God's plan for history, nations, his people, that though your oppressors seem to have supernatural power on their side, so do God's people, that God only needed to send me, this messenger angel, and Michael, who's not just the chief prince, he's your prince. He's, he's, the, he's the one that God has sent to oversee and protect you, his people, against the demonic influence over, 
uh, from the Persian Empire. And then as we wrap up verse 1 with the actual end of this chapter, he concludes, in the first year of Darius's reign, this angel, I, the, the, the narrator, su supported and strengthened Michael. Now, I want you to think about historically what happened during the first year of Darius's reign, 538 B.C. We already talked about this, the beginning of the message. There's a decree that went out to end the captivity of the Jewish exiles, just as God had prophesied 150 years prior in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45, specifically even naming King Cyrus as their liberator 150 years before his coming. This is what Satan and the prince of Persia were trying to prevent. But this is what Michael and this angel did and were able to win. So why is this encouraging to Daniel? Let's put all the pieces together. Despite this ferocious, demonic opposition, God protected God's people and won. And so he can trust him to do it again against the prince of Greece when he rises. That's the encouragement for Daniel. How does this encourage us? When the trials and tribulations that Daniel's prophecies uh, announce will arrive, and they will come into your life, don't be surprised because it was prophesied. And we're given these details not to make us afraid, but to make us aware that God is in control, that he fights on our behalf, and that he ultimately will win the battle. And so our role in times of trouble in our own lives is like Daniel, not to fear the future, but to be persistent in prayer because we trust a loving God's ultimate victory and sovereignty for us. That like Daniel, we are greatly loved by God and that he is a great God, so we fear not because he's in control of the, of the future. Now, let's tie this back into the prayer stuff, right? There's going to be days that you and I don't feel like God is so victorious or answering our prayers in that way. I didn't get the school that I wanted. I didn't get the job that I wanted. I got betrayed in a significant relationship. My anxiety or my depression never go away. The doctor had to take me aside. And the diagnosis was cancer. And so the question is, how do we persist in trusting God, persist in prayer when real pain comes into our real lives? September 1991, a Christian man named Jerry Sitzer, he's a professor, him, his wife, his mother, four children were driving home from a trip in their minivan when he saw out of the corner of his eye a drunk driver swerving around the curve on the highway and he didn't make the turn well, struck their minivan head-on at 85 miles per hour. Jerry and his three, three of his children survived, but after trying to give emergency care to his wife, Linda, his mother, Grace, his youngest child, four-year-old daughter, Diane, all three died. Jerry wrote a book called A Grace Disguised, and he writes about this experience after years of pain and grief. I reflect on the years of prayer for my family when I prayed for their health, when I prayed for their safety, year after year after year, and how do I see God answer my prayers? And in his words, I ultimately came to realize that no miracle can ultimately save us from death. That miracles are only a temporary solution because everyone and everything dies. That what we really need is more than a miracle. 
What we need most is God to promise us an everlasting justice, a justice that's so powerful that it defeats our ultimate enemy of death, a justice that cannot be reversed, that cannot be taken from us, a justice that restores and makes things right. That is the promise of Daniel chapter 10, that God is ultimately just, that God is ultimately victorious, that He overcomes the seeming defeat in our lives, that we know how the story ends. And we move that timeline forward to us. And it's not just for Daniel. That promise is ultimately fulfilled at the cross. When the Son of God died for our sin, rose as our Savior, defeating the powers of evil, suffering, and death in our lives so that you and I know exactly how our story is going to end. And that as we turn to Jesus, as we pray to Him persistently, consistently, we discover that He is wonderful, that He is amazing, that He is forgiving, that He is loving, that Jesus heals our hurts, He fixes our fears, He defeats our doubts, He forgives our sins, He lifts our burdens, He gives us life, He rose from the dead, He's coming again, and we get to be with Him forever. And that is amazing news. That is good news. And so because of the resurrection, you and I can pray and never give up in praying because we know that every prayer, every hurt, every need, every sorrow that's lifted up is heard by Him. And knowing that even when we don't get what we want, when we want it, that there's a God in heaven who is good, who loves us, who has a plan, who knows the end of the story and has already planned for it. And knowing that whatever we go through in this life, The risen Lord is our promise, is our deliverance, is our victory. And so this morning, we've been given a glimpse behind the curtain of what's really happening, what God is really doing when we pray. And it gives us confidence to persistently pray when trials and tribulations come because you are greatly, greatly loved by a supernatural God who you can trust for his timing and his fulfillment. He is never late. And a God who has already won the battle through our true king, through our savior king, so our victory is assured. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your incredibly deep love for us. We say that over and over, but we're reminded in your word Romans 5.8, when, when we question whether or not you care about us, whether you love us, it's very clear that you demonstrated your love for us, not when we were at our best, but when we were at our worst as sinners, that Christ died for us, that you traded your very best when we were at our very worst. And so this morning we ask that our starting point would be that we know we are greatly loved by God in heaven, that when we pray, that that is your first response to us. We pray that you give us supernatural patience to wait upon the goodness of God, to trust you even when it's not the answer that we asked for. We pray that we would encounter you, supernatural Holy Father, and that we wouldn't take it lightly, that we would chase after you because we're asking heaven and earth to move. 
Make us men and women who treasure you, who treasure conversation with you, who trust you, who persistently chase after you. That we don't stand helpless in our troubles because we have a powerful God who gives us peace, who strengthens us, who knows the end of the story and is leading us there. May we be persistent in pursuing you in prayer. We praise you in the name of Jesus.